millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this special event recording, Lisa Curtis and Martin Rasser of the Center for a New American Security join Rory Medcalf and Johanna Weaver to explore the ideas put forward in their recent paper from the Quad Tech Network's QTN series. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. The event today is really the the launch of a paper published by the National Security College under the banner of what we call the Quad Tech Network, the Quad Technology Network. This is an initiative that was launched by the Australian government, sponsored by the Australian government last year, in fact, really as a way of shaping and, and pioneering debate about the way in which the Quad countries, Australia, the United States, Japan and India, could collaborate on the whole spectrum of emerging and critical technology issues. And fascinatingly, when you look at the the Quad summits this year, the two Quad summit meetings, uh, key meetings for the first year of the Biden administration, uh, it's fair to say that a lot of the work the Quad Tech Network has done convened here at the National Security College, but with uh, international partners, a lot of the work of the Quad Tech Network has helped to pioneer and frame the agenda uh, that Quad leaders have embarked on. So don't say that research institutions and think tanks and universities don't matter in this debate. Clearly, they do. And we're joined today by experts from one of our Quad Tech Network partner institutions in particular, from the Centre for a New American Security to uh, to really discuss, uh, I think, the key paper uh, on uh, techno-diplomacy strategy for telecommunications in the Indo-Pacific, a key paper in this second tranche of Quad publications. The authors of the paper I'll introduce in a moment, uh, Lisa Curtis and Martin Rasser, who've been close collaborators with the National Security College on this project, I'm also pleased that we'll be joined by my colleague from the ANU, uh, so Associate uh, Professor Johanna Weaver, who's the director of a new initiative here at the ANU, the Tech Policy Design Centre, to to challenge, to untangle the key arguments in this paper, which make some quite ambitious proposals on how we can build public-private partnerships in quad countries particularly in telecommunications and undersea cables. So let's get underway with the the discussion. There are so many recent events that I'm sure will feed into this conversation. Just this week, of course, the the announcement of the uh, the Digicel uh, purchased by Telstra with support 
from the Australian government, uh, a pretty strategic development, and many other issues, the implications of, um, of AUKUS, for example, on quad cooperation in tech. And over all of this, the question of China's choices, China's behaviour, uh, and the coercive actions that have in many ways have driven this quad cooperation. So at that moment, I might turn now to the authors of our paper for some introductory remarks about the key arguments and recommendations uh, that, that you have put. And I'll go first to, to Martin, uh, Martin Rasser, who's Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program at the Centre for New American Security. Martin, we'd love to hear a few thoughts from you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rory, and thank you, Johanna, for having Lisa and me here today. And uh, I also want to just thank the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade for initiating and supporting the work of the QuadTech Network. Um, so let, let me start with why uh, Lisa and I chose to write about telecommunications technologies and telecommunications infrastructure. I mean, ultimately, you know, these uh, technology areas are the central nervous system of the modern economy, right? And our societies cannot function without them. And that's why it's so critically important that this infrastructure is secure and is resilient and, and trustworthy. The good news is that the quad countries are already cooperating quite a bit in these areas, but there's a lot more work to be done. And I think there's four specific lessons from the 5G experience so far that I'd like to to focus on because these ultimately underpinned a lot of the the broader recommendations that Lisa and I made in the paper. Um, so uh, one is the just the unacceptable risk posed by equipment from untrusted vendors on these networks, and this is an area where all four countries are very much in alignment. And Australia was really at the forefront of understanding and articulating this problem um, and so truly pioneering. Um, two is the need for greater diversity of trusted vendors, right? A, a global market with just three major manufacturers of radio access network equipment is inefficient, causes undue supply chain risks. Three is the importance of standard setting. Um, we have to push back on China's subversion of international standard setting at a basic level that just means we need to show up right oftentimes uh, foreign firms non-chinese firms just don't have full contingencies showing up at these meetings and there's some very straightforward things that the quad countries could do to to address that um finally there's the the rise of huawei and the challenges that came along with that uh, just the fact that that shift in the market dynamics occurred was was something that we could have foreseen and and mitigated much better than we had. Um, and so there's important lessons that can then be drawn to as we start rolling out 5G networks, but also looking ahead to 6G networks, for example. Now, in the paper itself, we specifically addressed the potential for open radio access networks as a means to apply some of the lessons learned. And I think there's an, a lot of opportunity for innovation, improved economic competitiveness, and of course, there's some distinct national security benefits that flow from that as well. So let me focus uh, in brief on some of the recommendations that we make, and then I'll turn it over to Lisa so she can talk about the subsea cable aspect and uh, discuss some of the other recommendations. 
So one of uh, the first major recommendation is that the Quad countries need to pursue a clear and consistent effort to inform the publics of the Indo-Pacific countries about the risks of using technologies from techno-autocracies, China most prominently. Two is industry collaboration, right? Public-private partnerships. The Quad members should provide incentives such as tax credits to encourage more and deeper collaboration particularly for R&D, standard setting, and infrastructure development in third countries. Three is countering coercion. The, the Quad members need to provide financial and diplomatic support for countries that choose to forego what appear to be at the face value attractive Chinese technology offerings because these countries have been threatened with, with economic repercussions by Beijing. So we need to have their backs when they make that difficult decision. And ensuring a united front in this matter will help to demonstrate to Beijing that it cannot exert its will in the region unfettered. And fourth and finally is government financing. I think one of the biggest impacts that the Quad can have on the Indo-Pacific region is creating comprehensive funding mechanisms for secure and resilient digital infrastructure. And we're already seeing some uh, initial signs uh, that our national leaders agree on that point. And that's something that I hope we can see rolling out. So let me uh, turn to Lisa so she can talk about the undersea cable aspects and some of the other recommendations that we make. Well, thank you, Martin. Uh, and thank you, Rory, uh, for inviting us here today uh, for this important discussion. Um, so as Martin pointed out, uh, uh, the reasons why we picked 5G and subsea cables to focus on in this paper. Uh, let me also add that the recommendations that are in this paper, I think, can serve as a template for how to deal with other technology challenges uh, that our countries will face. Uh, so the subsea cable issue, um, I think it's it's quite evident why this is such an important issue. 95% of global data transmissions rely on undersea cables. Uh, Beijing uh, certainly recognizes the centrality of undersea cables to global data flows, and it's putting a great deal of effort into trying to green, gain greater market share of the undersea cable industry. Of course, American companies own or lease about half of global sea undersea cables at present, uh, but China is certainly making inroads, and it set itself a goal of controlling 60% of fiber optic communications market by 2025. Uh, so, you know, we've already seen that the U.S. government has discouraged uh, subsea cables uh, from landing in China. Facebook, for example, last year backed out of a project to build a subsea cable from California to Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, we know that China is undertaking multi-country undersea cable projects. One is a 9,000-mile-long uh, cable running from Pakistan to Kenya to France. The other is a 23,000-mile-long cable with 21 landing sites in 16 African countries. So the Quad is well-placed to meet this challenge, um, and... Uh, we see that the Quad is also particularly concerned about the subsea cable development in less developed countries um, because of their underdeveloped critical infrastructure networks. And the Pacific Islands is a case in point. 
Um, I think we're going to be talking about the Digicel uh, issue later in the program. Um, but I also wanted to mention that the U.S. Uh, worked with Japan and Australia uh, last year to finance a subsea cable to Palau, uh, showing that this kind of cooperation can work, uh, does work. And the hope is to bring India into those efforts as well moving forward. And as in the case of 5G, each quad country actually brings an individual strength to the issue. Uh, of course, in the case of U.S. and Japan, um, they actually account for 70% of submarine fiber optic cable market already. Australia is a leader in creating regulatory frameworks for subsea cables. And India is set to become a key landing point for these cables that will be transiting the Indian Ocean region. So by combining their strengths, working together, uh, they can meet these challenges uh, that are coming forward. Um, and I would say that the need for the Quad to cooperate um, on this issue is quite urgent. Um, it's certainly uh, complicated by the fact that, you know, these are multi-country projects, um, a lot of legal issues come into play. Um, but in terms of uh, the recommendations for moving forward, uh, many that apply to 5G apply to the subsea cables as well. Uh, the need for public diplomacy to inform the publics uh, about what's at stake uh, on the issue, as well as the importance of collaboration with private industry, really from the get-go, having uh, private industry in discussion with the governments. Um, and this this will be complicated, right? Because it's complicated enough when one country brings in private industry, but here we're talking about four different countries and bringing you know, all four private industries together to, to address this issue. So it is complicated. Um, um, so uh, I've talked about the need to bring India into some of these financing arrangements uh, moving forward. Um, but also uh, we have talked about the need for the Quad to set up a monitoring system to monitor Chinese activity in the Indo-Pacific region to guard against uh, both sabotage and espionage uh, against subsea cables. Um, so this, this is something that the Quad can uh, collectively work on together. Um, and then lastly, the need to develop an international legal framework to protect the subsea cable industry. There really is no uh, effective legal framework for doing this. So this is something the Quad can work on together, setting the, the norms and standards for that legal framework. Um, so in conclusion, uh, it's clear that the Quad has a critical role in ensuring the digital future of the Indo-Pacific is free, open, reliable, and secure. Uh, the Quad nations have the collective resources and capabilities uh, to achieve these goals if they coordinate closely and they work in concert together. Uh, so that concludes my remarks, and I really look forward to the discussion. Look, thanks very much, Lisa. And um, just, uh, I, I don't think I, um, I, I gave you a proper introduction earlier. So I just note that uh, Lisa is a senior fellow and director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program 
at the Center for New American Security and has extensive experience across the US government. Uh, and of course, Martin draws on government experience as well in the, the national security community in the United States. Um, I'm going to hand over in a moment to my colleague, um, Associate Professor uh, Weaver, because it would be great to hear uh, your questions, Johanna, um, on, on the paper. But I might just also throw one or two um, framing thoughts in there uh, that I'd like to hear a little bit more on, or, of in the discussion, if possible. One is that, uh, you know, we work often from the assumption that China's dominant role in these technologies is a bad thing. But I think it's important to articulate that. I know the paper does that, um, articulates the risks, if you like, uh, from uh, Chinese dominance in uh, particularly telecommunications infrastructure. It would be useful to hear to hear a little more about that um, so that we could, if you like, examine it. Secondly, uh, incentive for public-private partnerships. I mean, we've seen one example recently where apparently the incentive was sufficient um, for, for Telstra uh, in Australia to, to make its decision but I'd love to hear a little bit more on, on how we can get that incentive structure to work. With those thoughts, Johanna, over to you, please. Thank you, Rory. Um, and thanks to Lisa and Martin for um, a fabulous paper. For those of you who haven't read it, I really encourage you to do so. It's it's a relatively, for an academic piece, short and pithy paper, um, and it really does um, cover um, really complex issues um, in a way that makes them very accessible. So congratulations to both of you for achieving that feat. Um, I uh, wanted to put some, some questions to you around some of the um, key large developments that we've had um, recently or well, since your paper was published. And here I'm thinking particularly around uh, AUKUS, which of course is about submarines, but uh, also um, has a big focus on uh, critical technology cooperation, and in particular um, called out undersea capabilities. Um, and uh, also um, the recent, um, uh, just a couple of days ago, announcement um, by Telstra and the Australian government um, of the, the partnership around Digicel, um, which seems to me to be an example of many of the things that you are encouraging um, in your paper uh, in terms of the, the cooperation between public and private, um, but also the government financing piece. Um, the Australian government um, in this um, in the Digicel agreement is putting $1.33 billion US on the table um, for, that, uh, for that agreement. So I'd welcome your thoughts on that. And in particular, if there are any things now knowing uh, particularly of AUKUS, but also the Digicel, would you have written differently in the paper or adjusted any of your recommendations having uh, the benefit of hindsight? Those are great questions. Um, well, let's see, let me, uh, I'll start with, uh, with AUKUS maybe. Um, so, you know, obviously there's a lot of focus on the, uh, the submarine uh, component of the agreement. I, I personally am actually more excited about the uh, technology cooperation agenda, uh, much beyond nuclear submarine technology. But I think, you know, for AUKUS, this would serve as a, a great complement to the Quad and, you know, could potentially lead to a Quad Plus, uh, including the UK and perhaps other countries such as Japan. Um, or I mean, uh, excuse me, South Korea, um, to to have a you know a more broad based uh, tech policy agreement, um, 
particularly for an area like telecommunications, for example, there are some very interesting things a broader group of countries could do in order to encourage the development of technology alternatives, such as open radio access networks across the Indo-Pacific and other parts of the world. Um, so, yeah, I think the the AUKUS development, yeah, we could probably, uh, you know, cite that as yet another example of how this uh, this broader collaborative environment is is really serving the the broader interests of the tech leading democracies very well. Um, but uh, Lisa, any thoughts on on AUKUS? Yeah, look, I think uh, you know we we talked about quad cooperation. AUKUS is. Uh, brings, you know, uh, the UK into the Indo-Pacific, which is quite interesting. It obviously strengthens the US-Australian relationship and the US security commitment to Australia, and also demonstrates the US um, interest in uh, working with allies and partners to, you know, extend the security commitment to the Indo-Pacific more generally and U.S. presence, and um, so it's it's quite uh, quite interesting on many levels, you know, strategically, but also as Martin pointed out on the technology front. Um, yeah, the focus is on the uh, nuclear-powered submarines, but uh, the agreements that will be necessary, the technology agreements, will also enhance Australia's capabilities um, in many, many other technology areas, AI, quantum computing, undersea capabilities, as you mentioned. So I think it's quite quite a significant agreement. And I would just, you know, contrast the the AUKUS, which is, you know, clearly uh, a military uh, agreement with the Quad, which is focused on non-military issues, uh, everything from climate change to vaccinations, and of course, critical and emerging technologies, which is a strategic issue. Um, but, uh, you know, to date, the Quad has not been focused on sort of military technologies per se, even though there's always some some overlap um, there. So I, I wouldn't, I don't think we would have changed anything. Um, I, th- I think that it does uh, lay the groundwork for looking more closely at uh, military cooperation or, you know, the potential for for that kind of cooperation. The way I sort of see the Quad is they're forming habits of cooperation on non-military issues, but should the need arise, the, the Quad could probably quickly shift to um, focusing on more uh, military-related issues. But, you know, I think the AUKUS is... A, a good development. I think it complements the quad and what the quad's doing um, on the technology front. And so I think it just further bolsters this idea of collective, um, you know, collective responsibility or, you know, collective work to meet the challenges of a rising China across the board. Thank you. Um, so I, I think to, to pour, pull out a little bit in terms of the differences between um, the Quad focus and the uh, the AUKUS focus, so um, one being more focused on the strategic issues, the other on the military. 
Um, and also looking at the recommendations that you have around public diplomacy and um, the um, consistent efforts to inform the public on the risks of using technology from uh, techno-autocratic uh, countries um, such as China, and also the prevalence of, of a push in a lot of the uh, conversations and a lot of the press releases around our shared liberal democratic values. And as someone who's engaged in the region um, extensively um, uh, from a diplomatic point of view, uh, one of the things that I find or have found when I've engaged on, on concepts like um, liberal democratic values or um, the techno-autocracies, the, the pushback that you get from countries in the Indo-Pacific is we don't want to have to choose between the US or China. Um, and they don't necessarily see it as uh, shared values. They have, um, in, in many respects, um, countries in our region and even countries in the Quad um, have, um, to an element, differing values. Of course, there are values that bind us. So I'm just wondering, in terms of your the recommendation there um, of the risks of techno-autocratic, um, is there, do we also need to acknowledge um, the ambivalence of countries in our region to terms like this, and also some of the scepticism that they may have towards um, countries of the Quad's intention, and how do you balance um, those differing perceptions? Yeah, that's a really important question. I... Um... I mean, I definitely understand, right, that this uh, this dichotomy between, uh, well, it's either the United States or China, that if you have to choose one of the two, yeah, for a lot of countries, that is not an appealing proposition. I think um, more nuance, uh, particularly from the American side on these issues, would be very helpful. Um, but ultimately, uh, a, a lot of it comes down to having a, a full understanding of of what's at stake and i think that that those types of discussions we need more of because it's it's not just a matter of you know choosing technology from one country or another it's everything that goes with it it's you know the the normative aspect it's the um the economic angle where that there are a lot of costs that are not apparent, uh, particularly when you have the the debt financing that goes along with the digital Silk Road efforts, for example. Um, and and all taking all taking all that together, I think is something that uh, the United States and the other Quad countries could do a better job of articulating um, with other countries in the Indo Pacific. Um, so that there's a better understanding of, of the total picture. Uh, it's definitely an area where more work needs to be done. Um, and as the, the Digicel acquisition shows, it, you know, it's an ongoing effort within the United States and Australia as well, right? Because it, it's not because, well, the Australian and the United States banned Huawei doesn't mean it's time for a victory dance it's ongoing work where you have to constantly um, monitor and assess what the risks and the threats are and how to best address those. And, and those answers will change um, according to specific circumstances. And the core message to partner countries in the Indo-Pacific needs to be that this is an, an ongoing effort. It's not a decision you make today. It's a, something you commit to uh, for the long term.
Yeah, I, I think uh, you're right that uh, countries uh, in Southeast Asia, they don't want to have to choose. And China's heavily invested there, you know, large economic footprint. Um, but I think what the Quad is showing it can do is it's showing it can deliver public goods that benefit the region, that this is not just about, you know, anti-China. It's it's a positive agenda, which is asserting a vision for the region uh, that actually benefits the countries of the region and helps the countries of the region um, be sovereign, maintain their independence. And um, they need choices, right? In order to be fully independent, they need economic choices, political choices, and I think this is what the Quad is offering. And um, the vaccine uh, initiative, I think, was well-received. Um, and I think, you know, we'll continue to see other economic uh, initiatives that the Quad can assert so that the, the region sees that the Quad is providing goods and benefits for the region, that it's not just a sort of anti-China shop that's going to make them choose uh, between one or the other. Um, so I, I, I tend to think the Quad has, has done a pretty good job at adapting uh, over the last year to some of that skepticism that we have seen from ASEAN. And the, you know, particular on the 5G issue, um, the, you know, the red flags were raised going back a couple of years um, it's taken a while for countries to fully understand uh, the risks of relying solely on, you know, Chinese technology for their 5G needs. Um, but I think now you, you are seeing some countries pause and, you know, see what happens. Uh, and, and so I think that, um, that there has been um, a raising of awareness on these issues. It, it's a continual process. And that's why Martin and I recommended, you know, so heavily on the public diplomacy part of this, explaining, you know, why we need to do this, what are what are some of the dangers, what are some of the risks of relying on Chinese technology. Um, but you know, I think so far uh we we have been doing that. We just need to, to continue. Uh, to 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 raise these issues. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I also um, had uh, maybe an observation on the, the quad just to note that... Um, Paradoxically, you know, we've often thought of the quad as it was. It was always portrayed as this balancing anti-China coalition, and 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 China has been determined to to kind of demonise the quad. But fascinatingly, um, comfort levels with the quad seem to be rising across Southeast Asia, and it could be that one of the um, uh, the hidden virtues of AUKUS is it actually makes the quad look um, like the. Um, you know the the uh, the less confrontational alternative. Now that I'm sure wasn't deliberate, um, but if that's one of the silver linings or one of the added bonuses, I should say, then um, then so be it. Uh, back to you, Johanna. Thanks, Roy. I think that's a really interesting point, and and certainly I, I think framing the quarters, delivering that um, that public benefit for the region is something as opposed to the the direct competition um will serve it well and and um is well received in the region and i think that plays out also um uh, lisa with with the points that you were saying about um that people don't want to necessarily choose between um a chinese um 5g um provider or solely rely on it and actually what we're seeing in most um economies in the region is that um there is um multiple different 5g providers that are being adopted and and that is in and of itself addressing some of those core national security risks um that we were having and um, i wanted to drill down a little bit on the countering coercion um point which i guess is actually <laughs> drilling right back uh, into the point that i was saying we need to go more broadly on but i was particularly interested in the recommendation where you say that uh, numerous scholars have proposed ideas for countering Chinese economic coercion uh, that could serve as a model for um, efforts of Quad members providing financial or diplomatic support. I was just wondering if you could um, speak a little bit more to some of those ideas and suggestions, um, because I think that's something that is always front of mind here. So one of the ideas, um, I mean, it's basically to, to establish a, a fund, right? So if any one country is, um, you know, threatened with uh, uh, an export halt or that if China is a major customer for a certain item that the Chinese stop buying it, that that, that type of um, negative economic impact would then be made up for by the uh, this grouping of countries. Um to essentially serve as a, a, a cushion, so to speak, for, for these countries, which I think is an interesting idea. Um, you know, there's details that would need to be sorted out as to how large of a fund would you want this to be? Uh, you know, how how soon would this group step in to provide that type of financial safety net? But again, I think uh, a grouping like the Quad is a fantastic forum to have those types of discussions to see what makes sense for the Indo-Pacific, um, what kinds of support would you provide? Because there could be perhaps in, in addition to just a straight financial support, other things that could be done. And of course, on a diplomatic standpoint, having a more unified pushback whenever Beijing attempts to, to take these types of steps. Uh, we've seen it in you know, various parts of the world, um, Australia, of course, but also in Europe, 
So there is a need for something to that effect. Um, but I, I know Lisa has a lot of ideas on this as well. Yeah, you know, um, for so long, you know, China has uh, tried to wield that economic weapon, right? And uh, as Martin said, Australia has been uh, at the brunt of that, um, as have other countries as well. So even though we, we would have to think about some of the details of how we, we do this, I think that it's essential, this idea that, um, you know, we're, we're in this together um, we can't allow the Chinese to sort of uh, peel countries off and and wield this economic coercion over them, that we need to find a way to stand together, kind of help each other collectively. Um, and, you know, if, if countries are facing that kind of economic coercion because of their choices on technology, for instance, that the Quad might be able to to step in and have a, a response or a um, um, a solution uh, for for that country. I think this is a really important um, important aspect of uh, the recommendations because you know it's accepted that we need a sort of collective um, deterrence uh, response that we need to work together, uh, collective deterrence. So it only stands to reason that we, that we need uh, a sort of collective response on the economic coercion, the economic weapon that, uh, that China seeks to, to wield. Um, so again, we, you know, the details need to be worked out. Uh, but this is, you know, something we need to start thinking about seriously and should be part of the, um, uh, you know, the challenge, the the response to the technology challenges that we're facing from China. Great. Thank you, Lisa. Um, uh, Rory, I think you have an audience question. Yeah, thanks, Johanna. I've got a couple of questions from the audience. And one which um, we might come back to is, uh, I think there is quite a lot of interest in, in drawing our speakers out a bit more on um on the DigiCell announcement, which I know you were you were keen to uh, bring into the conversation, Johanna. So we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, but first, I might um, invite actually um, Haley Channer uh, from the Perth US Asia Centre uh, to put uh, your question, which you will do far more articulately than I can, Haley. So over to you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, the panel members and also the publication that they've produced, which is really a quality piece of work. I have a question actually about the Five Eyes um, Technical Cooperation Partnership, uh, TTCP, because there's obviously a technology aspect to the Quad and also AUKUS. However, neither the Quad or AUKUS include Canada or New Zealand. So my question is about, does this mean that either there's not the same political will in Canada and New Zealand to work with the US and UK on defence technology sharing agreements? Um, or is it just a case that Australia has something more to offer than those two other Five Eyes countries? I think my initial reaction is that uh, Australia has been particularly uh, creative and proactive on pursuing these types of agreements. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, Canada, I, I think, would be very keen to have uh, better collaboration on this. And I think your question ultimately points to the fact that, you know, right now we have all these 
distinct efforts of smaller groups of countries essentially wanting to work on the same thing. And I've been making the case for a broader technology alliance where you would have a larger core group of countries to do exactly these types of things, because ultimately, you know, semiconductors is a great example, right? Right now you have the U.S. engaging with Japan separately with South Korea a little bit. There's some uh, semiconductor-focused discussions in the Quad, and there's a separate dialogue between the U.S. and the EU and the Trade and Technology Council. But again, if you really want to address semiconductors in a comprehensive and strategic way, you need a larger grouping that brings in Taiwan and that brings in Israel and Singapore and so forth. And what I'm concerned about, if we have this proliferation of uh, all these smaller groupings, they'll start working at cross purposes and you won't have that connective tissue that you ultimately need to have really collaborative approaches on all these issues. Um, So I would encourage our national leaders to think about the bigger picture. I think for the near term, these nascent efforts will work fine, but ultimately we have to drive to something bigger and more comprehensive in in order to make this lasting and to really address the the root issue on on a whole range of technology areas because they're very much interconnected and you you can't just deal with them in isolation so that that would be uh would be my advice to to our politicians yeah and just to to on AUKUS I think you know it's a combination of Australian interest and inclination uh to engage in this uh kind of uh, defense technology uh sharing and um uh, you know, interest in deploying uh, nuclear-powered submarines. So it's just sort of a natural fit, I think, for um, for the U.S. to to be willing to share this technology and to um, you know have the same vision uh, for the region. Um, and so, you know, I think it's it's willingness, uh, capabilities, interest. Um, all of those things, I think, combine to uh, make Australia, you know, a natural uh, partner um, in the August agreement. Um, and then the Digicel uh, issue, um, I think, you know, this shows Australia is in the forefront of meeting these technology challenges. Um, and it's it's just another example and I think it will assist in um, providing, you know, the the uh, digital transformation, contributing to that, uh, particularly in the South Pacific, um, in in these countries. Um, I think it's you know extremely important, and it's just really great to see Australia taking the lead there. And um, because again, this has to be a collective effort as we're meeting the challenges of China's increasing digital footprint, um, you know, across the globe, but um, in particular in the Indo-Pacific and seeing Australia sort of taking the lead um, in the South Pacific and in um, the development, the digital development of these countries. Um, I, I think it's it's really um, quite quite an extraordinary development and very welcome 
Um, what I might do is, given that time is short, I'm going to go to one of the other questions in the chat, uh, which is very focused on the public-private partnerships question, because I think getting to the, the nuts and bolts of how we operationalise the ambitions in this report is really important. There are, there are other questions and comments on the big strategic challenges, which I'm going to put aside because I think they're for a different conversation, a different group, but obviously very important questions nonetheless. And I would also observe um, from my own perspective on AUKUS, having done a little bit of, uh, if you like, research on this now, um, I'm quite confident that the non-submarine elements of the AUKUS arrangement uh, are essentially going to position uh, Australia, US and UK as a core for cooperation uh, on critical technologies with a whole range of partners, depending on who is willing and capable and what is the project in question. So I I think that we're we're very much on the right track here. Uh, okay, let me go to um, it's um, uh, Yosu Hosu Castro. Um, Josu Castro, you've got a question about public-private sector cooperation. Would you like to read out your question? Yes, thank you very much, Rory, <clears throat> and thank you, uh, panel. The question uh, I'll just read it as I've written it. Uh, what form might private sector cooperation between quad members on emerging technologies, what form might that take? Um, and is that likely to take the form of formal bilateral, tri-quadrilateral agreements coordinating public investment into joint R&D and commercialisation initiatives? Or is there a better, a better model that's more about supporting greater convergence between uh, private sector players and innovation ecosystems? And, and if I could jump in on top of that and just add also, I'd be interested if you can use uh, Open RAN as an example, because I think the observation you made in your paper that in 2019 policymakers had not heard of Open RAN and now it is really being put forward as a solution um, to many of the sort of challenges that we have around um, options and um, and uh, viable um, alternatives um, to some of the um, 5G providers. I think it's a really good example. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, happy to jump in first on this one. Uh, so, uh, uh, Hosu, uh, based on you know everything you describe, I, I could say it could be all of the above. Absolutely, uh, I think an ambitious uh, collaborative tech policy agenda could very much have all those as elements. Um, and yeah, to Johanna's point, Open RAN is a, a great example, right, of how these four countries can cooperate to really create a, a shift in how the telecommunications sector is structured. Because open radio access network technologies are software-based, um, you know, there's, there's lower barriers to entry for new vendors, be, uh, the proprietary hardware market is very difficult to break into, and that's why it's been consolidating uh, over the course of the past couple decades. But with Open RAN, yeah, now there's a lot of new opportunities where new software firms can come in to provide specific offerings. And if you think of the strengths that the quad countries have, software development is very high on that list. And if you have the government buying power from these four countries, that sends a very powerful message to industry players that this is the direction that these com uh, countries want to go in. Um, and then, of course, you know, cooperation on security becomes much easier. 
you have the the vendor diversity that is so important. Uh, you have more secure supply chains because you're not dependent on companies in a few small areas. You know, uh, Rare Earths is another great example. You know, think of what these four countries can do together to shift global supply chains. Right now, China dominates mining. It has a near lock on processing. But the quad countries together have the resources, the know-how, and the expertise to change that. And it will require a, a form of industrial policy in order to make that shift happen. And that's where I think one of the biggest values uh, of, of an arrangement like the quad uh, will ultimately lie if you can have coordinated policies so that you can effectively shift a global market uh, in a way that you have a more secure and resilient supply chain for these critical materials. If I can just add there, because I, I think, um, yeah, the way the open RAN was handled um, could serve as a model because you, you have, you know, uh, the U.S. government raising sort of red flags about the 5G issue, um, but recognizing that the solution would have to come from the private sector. And so communicating with the private sector and enabling the private sector to come up with a solution, um, that was really critical. So it really is a private-public partnership where, you know, the uh, the governments are recognizing a national security challenge, but they also recognize that the solution has to come from within the private industry. So they have to be able to facilitate those discussions and, and bring the private sector in. Um, and so I think that's how Open RAN uh, has worked and is, is moving forward. And so you would have to have the same model for other technology challenges as well. The private sector is part and parcel to finding that uh, solution. Um, so I think that that was a very good example. And then just to, to raise, you know, um, here in the U.S., we have, um, you know, landmark leg legislation making its way uh, through the Congress, um, the Innovation and Competition Act that was um, passed by the U.S. Senate this summer authorizing $100 billion uh, over a five-year period to bolster the U.S. tech research uh, industry. You know, this is, this is really um, a remarkable effort, and it shows the, the U.S. recognition of the need to support uh, the private sector. Um, and so this, this is, you know, will be the same for uh, the Quad as the Quad is working together um, the the importance of investing in the private sector, put you know, helping with uh, those resources, some of the seed money for the research um, and innovation that's going to have to to happen. Um, so hopefully we'll we'll see the other quad countries uh, moving in in that direction, and then be able to you know learn from each other, support each other. Um, and I think a great example of this was the education initiative, the STEM education initiative that was announced uh, at the Quad Summit uh, in September, where 100 uh, students will study uh, STEM and with an eye toward looking at approaching 
the technology challenges that the four countries are facing together. If I can just editorialise on that, Lisa, I think that's a fantastic point to wrap up that answer on. Um, I'd love to see that STEM education initiative extended. So it's not only the United States that's hosting those students. There's opportunity for other quad countries, including Australia, um, to play to their strengths in education and really be a host for for um, those new generations of expertise that we need uh, explicitly under a, a Quad Cooperation banner. But that's just a quick editorial intervention from me. Johanna, we've got a couple of minutes to go. I think we've got room for one more question. If you have a question or a comment uh, to drive the panel, and then uh, I'm going to wrap up in three or four minutes from now. Sure. So um, if I can also editorialise on Open RAN, I think it is an, an excellent example of um, naming a problem and, and then the power of innovation and ingenuity. And I think, you know, when people say X technology, we're concerned about this, Open RAN gives me hope that um, we as quad countries are able to rise to that challenge. Um, I guess for me, um, uh, I will go back to um, the question of visions and values. Um, and, you know, it, it, the it's in the strategic interests of quad countries when we talk about vision and values for the Indo-Pacific um, that we're engaging and aligning those values with countries in the Indo-Pacific. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts, and, and I guess this goes back to um, the original rec recommendation around um, public diplomacy and ensuring clear and consistent efforts. Um, do you think there's more that we can do around, as a quad uh, set of countries, um, engaging um, and ensuring that we are aligning and, and um, uh, it, um, having that vision that aligns, for example, with ASEAN partners? I'd like to take that up. I, I, I can uh, jump in quickly, um, and then if Martin would like to add something. Um, I think here is where I would like to talk about the importance of the Quad interacting with other countries, um, not necessarily talking about expanding the Quad. I, I don't think that is really necessary, at, at least now. I think it's the foundational grouping, but certainly there needs to be dialogue with other countries. And if you're talking about technology, you need to involve other technology leaders, Taiwan and semiconductors, South Korea, 5G. Um, so there has to be a dialogue uh, to bring these other uh, countries that share the Quad's vision, as you were saying. Um, so finding a way to, to work uh, together with these other countries. And then, you know, another example is uh, the previous administration, uh, right after the outbreak of COVID, did sort of a Quad Plus dialogue that also involved um, South Korea, New Zealand, and Vietnam, I believe, which was focused on addressing um, immediate Quad, I mean, immediate COVID issues. So I think that that is a good model that bringing other countries in on an issue by issue basis for dialoguing with the quad and that have the same vision uh, as the quad countries. I agree with that point completely. Um, I think the upcoming summit of democracies will be an interesting uh, test case to see, you know, how, how well the, the leading democracies of the world can align on these issues and, and hopefully come up with a concrete plan of action to push back against the 
erosion of democracy around the world and creeping authoritarianism because ultimately i think the core message needs to be that uh, this creeping authoritarianism even if it happens on the other side of the world is a direct threat to democracy anywhere and everywhere and that that core message i think really needs to be hammered home that uh, you know becomes a very slippery slope if you lower your guard in one part of the world that does have ripple effects uh, across the globe look on that note martin i think we'll wrap up the conversation on that fairly uh, sobering and, and, and bracing note. Uh, this paper is available on the National Security College website. It's also available, uh, I believe, on the Centre for New American Security website. So we're, we're really uh, spreading the word here. I think it is a really useful way to look at practical uh, opportunities, pl practical options for, for, for these pressing uh, problems of um, technology policy. I want to thank um, our panellists for their participation today. Thank you, uh, Johanna Weaver, for, um, uh, for, for pushing the conversation like that and for your work. Uh, thank you also to uh, Lisa Curtis for your work on this paper and in so many other areas. And, of course, thanks to, to Martin Rasser uh, for continuing to be uh, such a valued partner with us here at the, at the Quad Tech Network uh, and, and for your work on this. Just in closing, I'd note that um, there are a few more events in this series coming up, so we want to see all of you back uh, in those events, and please uh, spread the word and encourage colleagues uh, and friends to, to join those as well. On the 4th of November, we're looking at the future of 5G governance in more detail uh, with um, other of our QTN authors, uh, with uh, Andreas Kuhn and Trisha Ray uh, from the uh, Observer Research Foundation in India, and Johanna will be rejoining us for that. Uh, and of course, also with Jen Jacket uh, from the National Security College. And then on the 15th of November, we're looking at biotech, uh, biotech in the Indo-Pacific, uh, with Dirk Vanderclay from the ANU and with my uh, my colleagues from the National Security College, uh, Will Stoltz and Jen Jacket. So 4th and 15th November, please join us again. Uh, look out for the recording of this event online and um, share it round. Thank you for your support of the Quad Tech Network. Uh, stay well. And uh, if you're in Australia, have a great day. In the United States, have a wonderful evening. Uh, look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, colleagues. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.